Good morning and welcome to Rising. I'm Jessica Burbank and I'm joined here this Friday by Spencer Brown from the Rising Studio up in DC. How are you, Spencer? Hey, Jessica, I'm doing well. Uh, it's good that it's finally Friday, but we have a ton of news to get through again today, starting with President Joe Biden, who gave a primetime address to the nation yesterday where he announced an unprecedented $105 billion securities package for allies Israel and Ukraine. American leadership is what holds the world together. American alliances will keep us, America, safe. American values are what make us a partner that other nations want to work with. To put all that at risk, if we walk away from Ukraine, we turn our backs on Israel, it's just not worth it. That's why tomorrow I'm going to send to Congress an urgent budget request to fund America's national security needs, to support our critical partners, including Israel and Ukraine. We're going to make sure Iron Dome continues to guard the skies over Israel. We're going to make sure other hostile actors in the region know that Israel is stronger than ever and prevent this conflict from spreading. In addition to that, the president also urged Americans not to equate Hamas terrorists with all Palestinians. Hamas does not represent the Palestinian people. Hamas uses Palestinian civilians as human shields, and innocent Palestinian families are suffering greatly because of them. A new CBS poll finds that three in four Americans believes the U.S. should send aid to Israel, while just one in two believe we should send more weapons. More Americans, about 57 percent, believe we should send humanitarian aid to Gaza. Former President Trump, it seems, then is in the minority. He hit out against Biden's $100 million aid package to embattled Palestine during a press conference yesterday. Biden is sending $100 million to the Palestinians? Yes, Mr. President. Nobody was asking that question. What, go ahead. Well, what do you think about that monetary, monetary fund? I think right now it's totally inappropriate. It's so inappropriate to be doing that right now. He's over in Israel and he's giving money to the Palestinians. Uh, I think it's very inappropriate. Thank you very much. I don't know. Where I stand on this is Donald Trump, I think, probably just shouldn't even be making comments about it. $105 billion proposed to Israel and a, a measly $100 million to Palestine. I'm sure the United States will make sure that this money is not going towards weapons. They'll likely make sure that it is spent before it's ever in the hands of Palestinians so that it is guaranteed for humanitarian aid. I don't know if Donald Trump had as much experience with humanitarian aid when he was president, because uh, for him to be saying this, is it doesn't add up when you think about the conflict, the nature of the conflict, how much money is proposed by Joe Biden to give in Israel to be used for weapons and to bolster up Israel's military. We've already given $158 billion to Israel. I don't think $100 million uh, for Palestine is something that Trump has any business being angry about. I have no idea where he's coming from here. It doesn't make sense. I think, you know, going back to that first clip of the president's Oval Office address last night, it's important to look at not just what he said and how he said it, but sort of where his focus is. You know, I think I was hoping for a very strong speech from President Biden talking about how this is not the time for us to back down and our support for allies, uh, whether that actually means, you know, a massive aid package like that or not. Uh, and we just didn't get that. I didn't see, you know, a strong call that was focused on bringing the American hostages being held by the Hamas terrorists home. We didn't have him calling out sort of the this axis of evil 
evil that a lot of people have seen, you know, whether it be the Iranians, Russians, North Koreans, China, whoever. Uh, it was just not that forceful. And it seemed like the speech was predominantly about Ukraine, even though sort of the impetus for this speech was the situation unfolding uh, in Israel and what's happened to that country. And I just, I felt like that wasn't there. Um, and I think, you know, as President Biden in his speech, it wasn't in that clip, but in his address last night, mentioned that it's still basically a question of if the aid that he's sending to the Gaza Strip is intercepted or stolen by the Hamas terrorists. And it's almost impossible for the United States, or Joe Biden especially, to say that that's not going to happen. Because again, Hamas is the elected government there in the Gaza Strip. They control basically everything. That's why we've seen such horrible conditions there, even before this attack from Hamas into Israel and the, the aftermath of Israel responding to that. Things there have not been good for a long time, and it's because Hamas has been the government. And their main priority is not providing services to their people. Their main duty and what they've been doing is doing terrorism against Israeli civilians. And so, you know, the aid to them shouldn't even be necessary. They shouldn't need that aid. Hamas was given the Gaza Strip to run when Israel disengaged, and they just haven't done anything with it to actually keep the place a good place to live for Gazans. And so I think there's a lot that the president sort of glossed over in terms of why things are bad in Gaza, and there's a lot more that he should have done to focus on what's going on in Israel and who's behind what's happened to Israel. And instead, it seemed like most of it, again, was just focused on Ukraine. Yeah, I think the president's going to have a really tough time making the case for any aid going to Israel. I think Trump would have the same issue making the case uh, for more aid going to Israel. Humanitarian aid is a different story, but sending more money for weapons and to bolster up the Israeli defense forces, the Israeli military, I just don't see it happening. I think more people than ever are paying attention to what's going on in the conflict. More people than ever are aware of the occupation that's been in place since 2007, the blockade uh, on Gaza, where we have Israel controlling the territorial waters and airspace over Gaza, having control over their electricity and their food. And I think many people are not happy with how things have gone with Israel over the past week. Reports uh, of war crimes, the retaliation by Israel's military, I think many people are skeptical that to drop uh, eight, or sorry, 6,000 bombs uh, on Gaza and 4,000 tons of, of explosives of explosives of munition on Gaza, I think people are, are realizing that that's not defense. At that point, that's retaliation when so many civilians are killed. And I think people are skeptical that so many US dollars are going to fund Israel's military. I think we're at a time where the American public is approaching a mindset of being against US intervention. And I think we can learn from previous interventions that that usually doesn't stop the US military from partaking or going forward with their intervention. But I think it's a time of reckoning because in the age of social media, we have so much evidence of what's going on beyond what mainstream media and the White House is telling us. Well, and I think also uh, you talked about sort of the difference between defense and retaliation. And I think it's important to remember that this all started because Hamas terrorists invaded Israel and started slaughtering innocent Israeli civilians and then continued and has since then for now 14 days been launching rockets continually into Israel aimed indiscriminately at civilian targets. And so what Israel is doing is going after the Hamas terrorists, going after those weapons stockpiles, going after the underground areas where Hamas is continuing to build more rockets out of things like sewer pipes and other infrastructure 
infrastructure that should have been used to serve the people of Gaza but has not been used for that, is instead used for terrorism. Uh, and so Israel is still defending itself. This is still not in the phase of retaliation because Hamas terrorists and other terrorists in the Gaza Strip have continued to launch attacks on Israel. And so we haven't gotten to the point where they're not defending themselves. And you even had uh, the State Department yesterday in the briefing there. The spokesman said that the idea of a ceasefire right now is just not an option because this is not a situation where Israel has actually put down sort of the attacks that are coming out against it. And so in order to get to the point of retaliation, there would have to be a ceasefire on the part of Gaza where they have stopped attacking Israel. And again, they're aiming their rockets not at military targets, not at um, anything that is related to Israeli defenses. It's all going towards civilian cities and buildings and communities and stuff like that. And the, the outrage, obviously, has not been seen when Hamas is launching rockets at Israeli hospitals. I don't think I'd identify the start of this conflict as, you know, October 7th, uh, when Hamas went into Israel and, and brutally killed 1,200 people. I would identify the start of this conflict even before 1947, when we had this territory be ruled over by the British Empire and then the Nakba in the 1940s. And then from there, you had Israel established as a state recognized by the United Nations and a lot of powerful Western countries. And from there, slowly taking more and more territory where the Palestinians have lived. And then we had the international community call Palestinians when they fought back terrorists, uh, making it illegal for them to have weapons. I think that puts Palestinians in an impossible position. Then you have them slowly losing land and territory while Israel is funded and is the 10th strongest military in the world because they're funded by the United States, which is the strongest military in the world. They've been living essentially in an open air prison since 2007 when the blockade began. And that blockade happened shortly after Hillary Clinton was caught on a leaked audio tape saying she was unhappy with the way elections went for the people uh, in Palestine, the Palestinian people, and that we should have done something to ensure it was people we would like more. After that, we had a blockade in Gaza. And so when you have uh, 31,000 plus Palestinians die in 2018, when they try and have peaceful protests, they're killed by the IDF. They don't have a military to fight back. I just see the attack on Israel by Hamas as something that is a terrible loss of life, something that is gruesome and violent, and it makes me sick to my stomach whenever human life is lost. But I think when we understand it in context and we look at those numbers, we have to understand the conflict is not uh, Hamas is just fighting against Israel, killing people for absolutely no reason. I see this as people retaliating. And if the U.S. wants to be on the side of peace, they need to look at that conflict as a whole and, and pursue reconciliation rather than just funding Israel for dropping uh, for their campaign to drop 6,000 bombs on Gaza in response to 1,200 people dying. When we look at the death toll over many, many years, we can see that the U.S. military has essentially been funding a gen genocide of the Palestinian people. That's what's experts are calling it. That's what the United Nations is concerned about. That's why the Security Council all turned their backs to the U.S. when we voted against a ceasefire. We're not on the side of peace if we're voting against a ceasefire, and I really think the United States needs to be. Well, hopefully the United States continues to be on the side of preventing uh, sort of the violent massacres that we saw happen in Israel two weeks ago uh, this evening. We have a lot more to talk about on this topic, as always, but there will be more rising right after this. Democrats jeered after ousted House Speaker Kevin McCarthy formally nominated Representative Jim Jordan and said that the Ohio Republican is an effective legislator. Let's watch. But let me correct the record. Jim Jordan is an effective legislator.
To legislate is about more than the name on the bill. It's about reaching compromise and working long hours behind the scenes to get the job done. The House will come to order. Meanwhile, across the aisle, Democrats nominated Hakeem Jeffries as speaker. Let's roll that. I'm proud to nominate Hakeem Jeffries as speaker of the House. This happened just as eight Republicans voted no to Jordan, officially denying him enough votes to win the speakership for now a third time after failing on the first two ballots earlier this week. Uh, you know, this just did not go well for him, which I think was predictable. I think a lot of people said going into that third ballot that he had not built any more support for his bid. Uh, and I think there was even talk that more people would end up voting for people other than him, thereby, again, denying him the speaker's gavel. But I think, you know, as we talked about earlier in the show, as they were getting ready to do this, you know, who else is going to step forward to do this job? A lot of the people who have been talked about as being, you know, other effective legislators, people who have some broad support within the Republican conference, either don't want to do it or, again, just don't see a path to getting that majority simple majority vote in the House. And so you come to this point where who's going to end up leading the lower chamber, you know? Are they, how long can they go on like this? They had tried and decided to scuttle the attempt to make uh, the temporary speaker pro tem, uh, Patrick McHenry, uh, sort of the speaker light. And so their only option is to just keep going with votes like this. So if Jordan can't build the support, they need to pick somebody else. And who's that going to be? You know, I don't think you're going to be able to find somebody in the House Republican Conference who, without making some serious concessions like Kevin McCarthy had to make back in January, is going to be able to actually get that majority because it's just so slim. Yeah, honestly, running for speaker guaranteed public embarrassment right now. And I think that's probably deterring a lot of people who would do a better job than Jim Jordan. It's hilarious to watch Kevin McCarthy backtrack in that speech to compliment one of your colleagues and then have to backtrack because you know it's not true. To call him an effective legislator, Jim Jordan, since joining Congress, has not passed a single bill into law. Kevin McCarthy had to then say, well, you know, the real legislating happens behind the scenes. It's wheeling and dealing and getting a bunch of votes. Jim Jordan is also not known for being good at that. They called him the second speaker of the House because he kept telling the speaker what the speaker could and could not do and that they would leverage the support of the Freedom Caucus to police their behavior. It was something they said pejoratively, not you're such a leader, you're basically the number two guy. That's not what that was all about. Effective lawmaking ranks Jim Jordan as one of the least effective lawmakers in the House Republican Conference. This is a sad person to nominate, and I don't think Jim Jordan is used to losing. His electoral record is 14 and 0. His speakership electoral record is 0-3. So I don't see Jim Jordan lasting too long in his bid for speaker either. I think he's going to throw the towel in before they ever get to that threshold. 
Yeah, I feel like the problem, like you were saying, is if you put your name forward, you're almost guaranteeing that you're going to end up being humiliated at least once or twice uh, when inevitably the first round or the second round, or in Jordan's case, the third round, doesn't go your way. Uh, and I do think that dissuades a lot of people who have been very successful and do actually have a lot of power in the house. But sometimes that power is, uh, you know, more of the soft power and less of the running around, you know, telling people exactly what they're going to do. I, I agree that calling him, you know, Focusing on Jordan's legislative record is probably not the way that McCarthy should have gone about that nomination. But I do think the point he made is true and is one of the reasons I was kind of surprised to see Jordan end up putting his name forward in the first place. And that's because Jordan has always been kind of a behind-the-scenes more kind of guy. You know, again, he's definitely made waves in the Judiciary Committee with his investigations this Congress. But even that, you know, is not he's not passing bills. He's there, you know, making sure that information gets brought out to the American people from Biden administration officials, from big tech uh, CEOs, from other people that otherwise, you know, the American people would probably not hear from or who would not have to answer questions under oath. And so I think in that way, Jim Jordan has been successful. And again, when you look at what he did back when he was, uh, before he was a judiciary chairman, when he was sort of, you know, the second speaker, he was able to put a coalition together that did wield a lot of power. The problem is a lot of that coalition is no longer in Congress. And now the group that he's trying to build a coalition out of, still a lot of them remember what he did back then and aren't necessarily keen on giving him the keys to the House chamber. And so I think it's going to be, like you said, again, can he go forward for another round? Is he even going to try that? Is he going to try to sort of gracefully bow out of this? Are they going to go back and do another conference meeting where they again say, who wants to run? And then they hold a vote on that to see who their new speaker designate is. You know, this Steve Scalise is probably sitting there right now going, whew, I dodged a bullet on that one because I don't think that even he would have won on the floor if they had brought him, if he had stayed in the race and then they had brought him to the floor. Yeah, I think Republicans are really struggling here because in any scenario, they're just not looking good. When you have the Democrats vote after vote voting for Hakeem Jeffries, I will say it is incredibly cringe to have all of them standing up and applauding him while he is just sitting there. We know that they don't have the majority here. We know that very likely, unless something extreme happens, he will not be Speaker of the House. But every time they act like cheerleaders cheering for a team that, I don't know, is in a draw, that is in a tie, it doesn't make sense that they're so supportive of Hakeem Jeffries and that they're fundraising off of this, by the way. If you're on any of the list because you've donated to any candidate that's run with the Democrats before, you've gotten messages from Hakeem Jeffries. Why do they need to fundraise around his bid for speakership that he will likely lose because they don't have the majority in the House? What are they going to use the money for? Are they going to pay off members of Congress on the Republican side to vote for him? Fundraising around every little political fight is also incredibly cringe. And I think even if you're the Democrats and you're in a strong position, even though you don't have the majority, you are doing a terrible job of getting public support around this. I mean, they should be making a meal out of saying the Republicans have no one worthy of leading the House of Representatives. These are the people you voted in. No clear leader. They could be doing so many things, but instead they've taken the most cringe path possible, which is not surprising, unfortunately, at all to me.
Yeah, the the clip of them all standing around clapping uh, as he you know takes a seat kind of reminds me of the Democratic National Convention where everybody, including Hillary Clinton, is dancing and clapping. Uh, it's just it's not something that Democrats uh, should should do. And I think even more cringy than that scene is every time they do these roll call votes when they get to Jeffries and he's called on and he votes for himself, the whole Democrat side of the chamber stands up and starts screaming and hooting and hollering and clapping. And it's like this is not you didn't win. You're not in the majority again. Like you said, it's kind of at a draw. Right Right now, but you guys didn't win in the midterms. You actually lost the majority. It cost Nancy Pelosi her gavel. So why are you guys so happy about this? And if you're fundraising, are you fundraising for anything to maybe fix the fact that you're in the minority? It just seems seems like they don't really. Are, they're just having fun clapping uh, and not actually getting anything done. Uh, but of course, we'll continue to keep an eye on what's going on in the House chamber as the House continues to try to find a speaker. We'll be back with more rising right after this. Third time's the charm. Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan delivered a press conference this morning just hours ahead of yet another vote for speaker. Let's watch. It is a great country, a great country, the greatest country in my judgment, made up of great people. And right now those people, I think, are starting to doubt and wonder about their government and about where our nation is headed. They see an open border. They see crime in the streets. They know what it costs to put gas in their car. They know what it costs to put food on the table. They see a war in Israel, our strongest ally, Israel, and what's happening there, and the help that Israel needs. And they see a government that's been weaponized against we, the people. The very government that's supposed to serve us has been turned on the taxpayers who pay for it. I think the American people are thirsty for change. I think they are hungry for leadership. And frankly, they know that the White House can't provide it. They know the Senate won't lead. And they are looking for House Republicans to step up and lead and make change on these important issues. Jordan further made the case that electing a speaker is imperative to get the government working again, including sending aid to Israel. This impasse has enraged pro-Jordan supporters, not just in the halls of Congress, though. Lawmakers who have opposed the judiciary chairman have reportedly been on the receiving end of a pressure campaign comprised of threats and harassment. CNN obtained a vitriolic voicemail targeting one lawmaker's wife. Let's listen. We're going to do what the left does because your of a husband gets on TV. Oh, the bad guys. They did. So I'm going to vote for Kevin McCarthy, a piece of who everybody knows. And for his piece of ass, talk about Americans who are actually fighting for Americans as the bad people, does everything about him. So, f- you, f- your husband, and we are gonna, we, we're not like the left, we aren't violent, but we're gonna follow your ass, every appointment you have, everything you can f- do. Meanwhile, Congressman Ken Buck is allegedly getting kicked out of one of his offices. Axios reporter Julie Grace Brufke posted on X that a source close to Buck told her, quote, the landlord for one of his offices is terminating the lease, presumably because of his vote against Jordan. Jordan lost a second vote for speaker yesterday by an even wider margin than the first vote. 22 Republicans opposed him in that second round. He also said, though, he's prepared to hold lawmakers in Washington over the weekend until a speaker is elected. And as we're taping right now, this voting is happening now on the House floor. You can see they're working on bringing everybody in to establish a quorum. Now, I would not want to be the person that's forcing members of Congress and their staff to stay in D.C. over a weekend. You know, that's the kind of thing that usually doesn't make people feel better 
about supporting you, but I think one of the bigger questions that we have right now is among House Republicans, if not Jim Jordan, if he can't get to that magic number, who's it going to be? You know, is Kevin McCarthy going to launch sort of a Miss Me Yet campaign to point out how it's actually very difficult to govern when you have a small majority like this that Republicans have right now? Or is it going to take somebody else? You know, and obviously Jim Jordan, there was that back and forth where he was discussing backing the plan to put in sort of this speaker light in uh, the temporary speaker pro temp, uh, Patrick McHenry from North Carolina. And then he rolled back on that and said, nope, we're going to push another vote on this. And it seems like he wants sort of the same kind of fight in public on the House floor that we saw with Kevin McCarthy back in January that went 15 rounds, five days. You know, I don't know if he has sort of the ability to do that when so many people are against him and this is what his supporters are doing. You know, whether it's keeping people in D.C. over the weekend or having Jordan supporters calling people, sending messages like that one we just heard, you know, that doesn't seem like the kind of thing that could convince anyone to support him. And obviously Jordan has posted, you know, disavowing people like that and saying there's no place to be threatening other members of Congress simply because they think someone else should be the House Speaker. But I just don't know how, if he keeps losing votes in round after round, how he can, how long he can drag this out. You know, Kevin McCarthy eventually turned the corner and started wheeling and dealing and got people to come over to his side. But do you see that happening in this case? I don't know. Seeing this live feed on the floor of Congress where folks are talking to each other, we see, I don't know, some some hand motions. It sounds like people are making their points, making their case. I don't know if they're making a passion case for Jim Jordan, though. I will say Kevin McCarthy is probably very jealous that people like Jim Jordan enough to leave threatening messages on people's voicemails who vote against him. Kevin McCarthy went through 15 rounds and hardly enjoyed support from the public. I think the void in leadership in Congress is a big problem. We have things to do. The government is in a, a time of a stopgap bill. That's the only reason it's funded. We're running out of time on that. They should be budgeting, but instead they're talking about who the speaker is going to be. And I think a lot of us have the question, will anything meaningfully change when they have a new speaker? Or will we have the same kind of leadership, the same kind of policies passed, uh, as we did under Kevin McCarthy. And I think a lot of Republicans are now grappling with that, probably Matt Gates in particular, uh, because Jeffries got pretty close to the threshold. There was a time when Jeffries was getting more votes than Jim Jordan. I'm sure that made a lot of Republicans nervous. And so I think the void in leadership is a big problem, and Republicans as a whole are going to take uh, the fall for that. They're going to be blamed for that, I think, by the American people and the public if we have a uh, government shutdown. And so I think they're kind of wasting their time. I get that everyone was upset with Kevin McCarthy's leadership, but I think there was a better way forward here than potentially going to four rounds of votes, 15 rounds of votes like Kevin McCarthy. They could be there over the weekend again. Yeah, and the interesting thing is because this is happening over a weekend and nobody had really planned for having to still be fighting this right now, there's a chance that some members of Congress from both parties could actually have obligations that they end up leaving town for. And of course, in order to elect a speaker, the threshold they have to reach is just a simple majority. It's half the chamber plus one other vote in order to become the speaker. And so if, depending on which side, more people leave town, you could be in a situation where there's a, there, it's a, it's a wild theory, but it's not an impossibility that Hakeem Jeffries would end up being the Speaker of the House. And so Republicans especially have to be very careful with who's out of town and making sure that they keep their numbers up before they call these rounds of votes. Because if they end up in a situation where they counted wrong or somebody got on a flight that they didn't know about, there's a chance that this could end up being even more of a political drama than it already has been. You know, obviously, 
people watching since just January when it was Kevin McCarthy's turn fighting for votes, and now this time around after Matt Gates uh, filed that motion to vacate and ousted Kevin McCarthy, and now with Jim Jordan heading for round three. It seems like it's as dramatic as it could get, and yet I guess there's a possibility that this could even get more dramatic. And I just I, I would love to know how Republicans on the Hill would plan on selling that as we approach 2024 back home for why they should be reelected and why, at the national level, Republicans pitching why they deserve to be elected if somehow they end up accidentally messing with the math enough that Hakeem Jeffries ends up as Speaker of the House. I mean, has can, can you imagine that? That would be just one of the most entertaining situations that would make, again, the argument that Veep was a documentary, basically, about life in Washington. That's an exciting prospect. I would love for enough members of Congress to go on vacation and that result in enough votes uh, being not counted that the simple majority results in, I don't know, electing Hakeem Jeffries as speaker. I don't love Hakeem Jeffries, but it would be hilarious if the Republicans shot their, themselves in the foot here. Uh, would also be hilarious if that's how Jim Jordan ultimately gets in. And we have a bunch of photos of either Republicans or Democrats on vacation instead of in, in the halls of Congress in Capitol Hill. I think that would be unbelievably funny. And I think it would show to the American people who really cares about good governance, who really cares about representing them in Congress, and who doesn't. If that is the case, and we have members of Congress required to stay over the weekend in order to get their votes in for speaker, and they go to a fourth round of votes, which it looks like they will be, then I would love for people to take photos of them on vacation. That would be brilliant. When Ted Cruz would run off to Mexico while there was all sorts of catastrophes going on in Texas, we had photos of him, you know, going to Cabo in his little outfit. I would love to have all of the members of Congress that are off in Martha's Vineyard for the weekend enjoying the fall weather to be front page. Where were you when you were trying to elect a speaker that you didn't have? The void of leadership, I think, is much deeper than just the speakership. A lot of our members of Congress are not good leaders themselves. And I think Jim Jordan giving that speech really revealed that. He didn't sound like a leader. And I know there's a lot of people that say, well, well, who's better? A lot of people proposed Emmer, the whip, but I really don't think a lot of these folks have the leadership qualities uh, that Kevin McCarthy has when it comes to seeming like a leader. He clearly did a really bad job making deals and actually delivering on it, but at least he sounded like one. Yeah, and arguably the worst deal McCarthy made was whichever person he had to promise to lower that uh, threshold for the motion to vacate to bring it down to just one member of Congress being able to do that because it ultimately, even though he became the speaker, became his undoing. Um, I think you mentioned this uh, earlier in this segment, but you know, just because they've picked a speaker does not mean that Congress then can sort of breathe a sigh of relief, especially Republicans, because we're in this uh, continuing resolution period that prevented the government shutdown from happening at the end of September and kicked it down the road to just a few weeks from now. And so once they have a speaker, then they have to immediately return to that process of figuring out if they can put together a deal that Democrats uh, in the Senate would approve and that President Joe Biden would sign. And obviously that didn't go well the first time, which is why we have the continuing resolution in the first place. So, you know, it's, it's an undesirable job, and I guess maybe we should applaud Jim Jordan for at least throwing his hat in the ring to do this and getting 200 votes, uh, or 199, depending on which round you're counting, uh, because this is just going to be a mess. You know, the speaker's vote is dramatic uh, for sort of the symbolic and procedural reasons, but then we're right back in this mess we were in leading all the way through September once members of Congress came back from their August recess, where they couldn't agree on anything, they wouldn't, even Republicans were voting down the rules 
uh, votes just needed in order to actually debate the bill before they could even pass it. And so that whole mess is going to be opened up again as soon as they have a speaker. It's not like these problems go away. And I just don't know if no matter who the speaker is, if Republicans are actually going to be able to come together and agree on a plan and pass bills that follow the priorities that they promised the American people in the midterms that they would follow through on. And it just I feel like the speaker vote is honestly just sort of the window dressing at this point because it's going to get so much worse after they do elect a speaker. Yeah, I mean, the way forward that would be the most funny is people go on vacation and that's how we get the simple majority and vote in a speaker. But I think the two better ways forward uh, would be one, they agree to Rokana's plan. They agree that members of Congress don't trade stock. They agree that members of Congress do not take lobbying PAC funds. And they agree to some kind of term limits. I don't think it'll be 12 years as originally proposed, but some kind of term limits. Matt Gates said, hey, if you go forward with Rokana's plan, I'll remove the, the motion to vacate the speakership. That's an option. I think a, another pretty good option, another way forward for all of the members of Congress would be for them to get together and say, we're going to do Matt Gates's other plan, actually, and we're going to vote for spending packages piece by piece. We're not going to lump everything together when we decide on public spending so that if some people support defense spending, some people support more funding for SNAP, some people support cuts here, but more money there, they can't hide behind one big bill where it's all pork rolled and lumped together. Let members of Congress be held accountable for what they are voting to fund and not fund. I think that is another really good way forward. And maybe we'll get some kind of policy concession here just because our members of Congress want to go on vacation this weekend. Accountability, what a novel idea for the people who are elected by the American people. I will say if anybody was planning on leaving town this weekend to go to Martha's Vineyard and you're now deciding to stay in D.C. after watching what Jessica had to say about you, you should send your tickets to us uh, and we will go in your stead and send you lots of photos. There will be more rising right after this. An Al Jazeera investigation has found no grounds for the Israeli army's claim that the strike on the El Ali Baptist Hospital was caused by a failed rocket launch. This comes as Tuesday's attack caused an uproar on social media with people pointing fingers at who was behind the bombing. United States intelligence said their assessment supports claims by President Joe Biden and the Israeli government blaming Palestinian terror factions for the bombing. Journalist Michael Schellenberger wrote on X yesterday, citizens are spreading dangerous misinformation on social media platforms, say journalists and governments. But inaccurate stories on the Gaza hospital explosion prove that the most dangerous misinformation comes from not from citizens, but from journalists who rely on governments. In new reporting, public reporters make the case that governments and media are spreading misinformation on Israel and Gaza while demanding censorship. Joining us now to discuss is founder of the public Substack, Michael Schellenberger. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Good to be with you. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what went into that tweet? This has been such a back and forth from initially, we had uh, Israel's digital spokesperson, Naftali, posting, yes, uh, Israel is taking credit for the bombing in this hospital. It was a Hamas target. Then later, you have the United States backtracking, saying, well, actually, we think that this might have been uh, Hamas misfiring a rocket. Then later saying that it's jihad. Can you walk us through a little bit of what went into the sentiments you described in that tweet? Sure. Well, I think it's important to understand that um, over the last two weeks in the run up to the bombing or to the explosion, I should say, at the Gaza hospital, uh, we had seen uh, journalists and governments uh, basically demanding significantly more censorship uh, by X, formerly Twitter, 
of what they claim to be misinformation. And indeed, some of it, uh, ha there has been a significant amount of misinformation on the platform. Um, however, as I note, as we noted in the piece, um, we've also seen a lot of community notes attached to uh, inaccurate information. The most famous examples are people taking video game footage and suggesting that it's uh, real uh, wartime footage uh, from the Israeli-Gaza conflict. Uh, very quickly, that had been tagged with community notes identifying it as video game footage, which instantly means that it's no longer misinformation. It's actually then accurate information. I pointed out earlier that the um, top censor of the European Union, a gentleman named Thierry Breton, had uh, claimed that this was uncorrected misinformation on the site that had already been corrected. Uh, we also saw mainstream journalists from BBC, NBC, just attacking, you know, X and Elon Musk and citizen journalists as having been horribly wrong. Well, there you were a, a few hours or a few days later, we see the mainstream news media rush to judgment in terms of attribution um, of the explosion at the hospital. Certainly there's some of it that we know was misinformation since it was a parking lot that was hit. One of the most egregious uh, parts of this whole story is the New York Times carried a photo of a bombed out building that was not the hospital in question. I was in New York at the time at the airport. I saw those headlines. I was horrified. The picture in my mind was instantly that the Israeli Defense Forces had bombed the hospital. Um, I should hasten to add that uh, that you just mentioned this Al Jazeera investigation. We don't know with certainty uh, what exactly happened. We don't even know what the death toll was. You know, as of yesterday, there was a European source who said it was just 10 to 50 deaths. U.S. intelligence said that there were somewhere between 100 and 300. But I think that the lesson here is that all of the things that the mainstream news media and governments, particularly the European Union, had been saying about citizen journalists and about social media posts, um, claiming that, you know, uh, false news travels faster, that there's no so-called guardrails for uh, citizen journalists and on social media, in contrast to news media where there are supposed guardrails, or in contrast to pre-Elon Musk Twitter where you had guardrails. Well, here was a case where there were new guardrails on the part of the mainstream news media in attributing it to the Israeli Defense Forces. Um, and even if that were to turn out to be the case, uh, they did not have proof at the time. So I think that what you've seen, um, I think that the, the takeaway from the entire episode is a kind of leveling of the playing ground whereby the news media is no better than citizen journalists. They spread misinformation just as much as anybody else. And one of the things that we talk about in the piece is just that one of the worst episodes of misinformation in contemporary U.S. history was when the U.S. government claimed that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. That misinformation, disinformation actually, given that it was deliberate, was carried by the New York Times and other mainstream media and led directly to the war, the U.S. invasion of Iraq. So I think that this discourse that suggests that there's citizen journalists and social media are uniquely irresponsible uh, is, no, is not valid, maybe never has been, and certainly isn't after this uh, Gaza hospital strike.
Yeah, I think that's a great point because, again, you had, uh, for basically as long as I've been, you know, in journalism school and now in the media, everybody's always kind of talked down and looked down at citizen journalists and people who are breaking really important stories and telling stories that often the mainstream media misses. They're somehow always viewed, like you were just saying, you know, as being irresponsible and not having these guardrails, not having newsrooms, you know, to support their work. But then we have situations like this that happen, and you have them basically just taking whatever the Hamas uh, controlled, uh, you know, government minister there, I think it was the health ministry in Gaza that first said, you know, this was an Israeli airstrike that, you know, supposedly was a mass casualty event and killed 500 people. Most of that, as you pointed out, has been debunked. You know, it was a parking lot. We haven't seen the death toll look like it's going to be that high. And we have, you know, the U.S. intelligence community. We have IDF saying that this was not Israel uh, striking that area. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk a little about this. this is a space you've been in a long time. How did we get to a point where these mainstream outlets that supposedly have these guardrails, clearly they all failed. And these aren't newsrooms where somebody went rogue to publish these stories. You know, all of these stories went through the same sort of processes that anything else would go through. So can you talk a little bit about what's going on inside those newsrooms that has gotten to the point? where they didn't see any issue with running unverified reports from somebody who's essentially a member of Hamas? Yeah, it's a really great question. Um, there's a lot uh, to unpack there. I think one of the first things is that actually the news media have been getting rid of the guardrails. Um, one of the most important guardrails in the legacy news media were these older, crusty, often curmudgeonly, there's a sort of stereotype that we have. I think it has a good amount of accuracy to it, of kind of the old guys and the old and the old ladies uh, that had been in the in the newspapers for 20, 30 years. Uh, many of them were driven out, uh, often on politically correct terms. We wrote about this in the context of COVID origins that the New York Times lost uh, Donald McNeil, who was kind of canceled for using insensitive language. It's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, what they drove him out over, but they ended up driving out people that would have been a more skeptical voice as someone with a little bit more experience to say, hey, I remember back in the 70s, you know, we got this issue wrong and we could be making the same mistake. So I think the first thing is that a lot of those people were purged for irrational reasons over the last several years. Um, the second thing, though, is the, you know, the, the speed issue is is one that has been used to attack social media. There's, first of all, there's a false claim based on a badly done MIT study, but you'll hear it repeated a lot where people say that uh, false news travels six times faster than accurate news. It's based on a highly selective number of tweets from several years ago and used to generalize across the whole internet. There's this idea that, well, maybe the newspapers shouldn't have published uh, so quickly. I think actually the headline just should have been different. The story should have been different. They should have just uh, said that there was um, an explosion, there was deaths, but we don't know how serious it is and we don't know who do it, who did it, um, and that you could report that both sides are blaming the other. But I think that the initial headlines, you know, obviously uh, exaggerated the certainty that the newspapers had in reporting it. And then I think the third factor here is just that there's an economic competition between legacy news media and startup news media. We saw this uh, really dramatically in the attacks on Joe Rogan, which occurred, uh, I guess it was last year, um, or maybe it was earlier this year, but it was, you know, where basically all of the media attacked Joe Rogan for, you know, taking ivermectin. And it was just absurd. And it was clear that this is really about a competition over advertising dollars. 
So I think that it's, I think most people don't realize, but you know, the, um, the social media have been sending fewer of their readers to legacy news media outlets. At Facebook, that's just because Mark Zuckerberg got tired of being beat up all the time and being pulled before Congress. Um, it was already declining before Elon took over Twitter, but it's declined more since then so that Facebook and, and X both have an interest in keeping readers on their platforms rather than sending the readers um, off to the newspapers. So you just see a, a concerted effort by you know everybody, uh, CBS, NBC, uh, the New York Times, uh, you know, Rolling Stone, others all attacking X for so-called misinformation on the site. They have an interest in doing that. They want to establish themselves as having more credibility than the social media platforms or citizen journalists. And I think, you know, John, Burn, uh, John Burns Murdoch, a, a pretty good digital reporter at the Financial Times, wrote a really thoughtful thread a couple of days or maybe yesterday uh, explaining that this Gaza hospital misreporting is a pretty serious blow to the credibility and legitimacy of news media, certainly a pretty significant blow to their ability to claim to be, to have some advantage in terms of guardrails over uh, alternative and independent citizen journalists. I think a lot of the initial reports of the 40 beheaded babies and how gruesome uh, Hamas's attack on Israel was, led to a lot of, you know, just discontent, disgust, a lot of people on social media taking a stance, posting they stand with Israel, and a lot of news media covering this specific episode. And then Joe Biden to later say, although he initially said he saw confirmed photographic evidence of this, that there is no confirmation that this actually happened. And it seems to me that the, the news media tends to move on at that point rather than correcting the stories they originally ran. And I think that's the main problem here. I think the burden of proof here is that, you know, if you're legacy media and you want censorship, you have to prove that you can accurately report on stories and will correct yourself when you do not. If, if you don't have that, of course, your journalistic standards and efficacy of your journalism is the same as a citizen journalist. And so the burden of proof is just that censorship is worse. We're not gaining anything from it because wartime reporting is chaotic. We're going to have stories like this happen. But to me, it seems that a, it, it's a huge problem that legacy media is not correcting themselves. And now we have so much focus on this hospital bombing instead of a lot of the other things that are going on that are confirmed in Gaza. And it seems that they've derailed the conversation, perhaps intentionally, I would say. And when you have the Biden administration not able to confirm intelligence from Israel, I really want to get your opinion on this, that, of course, Israel is an ally. We should know what they're using a lot of our financial support for their military is going towards. And if we ask, hey, was it y'all that bombed this hospital? We should be able to get a straightforward response. It seems that either that didn't happen or Joe Biden is not being honest and citizen journalists are all we have to rely on if the legacy media is, you know, relying on governments. Uh, so what do you make of Joe Biden even saying he doesn't know what's happened here? Yeah, well, there's so much there, Jess, to unpack, but I think you raised some super important issues. Let's just start with the beheaded babies. I mean, this is something where you would see this claim that there were these beheaded babies, and then there was this claim, uh, then people said, well, we don't know how many were beheaded. And then there were people that sort of ridiculed the idea that it was important to figure out how many there were. Obviously, it is not unimportant to figure that out. As a journalist, you care very much about how many beheaded babies there were. I mean, it's a, it sounds kind of like a crazy thing that you have to even talk about, but of course you should want to know a specific number. We should want to know specific death counts. Uh, this is what a journalist does. 
There's certainly a lot of voices on social media, obviously, that are looking for every atrocity as an opportunity to score some points in some irrational idea, in my view, that it would make a difference, a significant difference in people's opinions. But journalists should not care about that. Journalists should just care about getting the information accurate. Um, just to go back to the Iraq uh, war situation, I, re um, I remember at the time there were people who said, Iraq, uh, there's no evidence that Iraq has a weapons of mass destruction program. They are not close to developing a nuclear weapon. And they, and they were criticized as sort of being soft on Saddam Hussein, which is also just absurd. Um, if you want to get accurate information on what Saddam Hussein is doing or how many babies were beheaded or how many people were killed at the hospital, this is the job of the reporter. And you must be absolutely immune to the criticism that somehow you're being soft or biased or something by wanting to get the facts. That's the job of that. That's why those journalists get sort of, you know, uh, grumpy and curmudgeonly in their old age in the newsrooms because they're there to say, hey, uh, I don't care how emotional and, and irrational our readers are right now. We're going to get to the bottom of this. So I do think that there's um, great reason to be skeptical of official sources. I mean, you have to remember that here we are coming from a period where we saw official sources uh, either accidentally or deliberately lie to the American people about the origins of the COVID virus, about the efficacy of the COVID vaccine, about the, the veracity of the Hunter Biden laptop, all of this on top of decades of governments lying to their populations about a whole range of things. So the idea that, and I'm sort of in the midst of an argument right now about uh, wind turbines and whales where people are attempting to debunk us by claiming that because the official government sources say one thing, our more recent data is somehow invalid. This is, that's authoritarian mentality. So the mentality that wants to censor citizen voices or, or dissident voices or disfavored views, it's an authoritarian view. And questioning the president, questioning intelligence services, this is the bread and butter of journalism. So I do think ultimately the change that needs to occur uh, is with uh, the readers. I think we are seeing journalists uh, showing up. Certainly our organization is very committed to this showing up saying, we want to get to the facts of this. We don't care uh, whose feelings are hurt or whether you think it's going to cause some you know, advantage to one side or the other. We have to get to the bottom of this. We should report accurately when we don't know. Uh, readers need to know that. And I think that readers need to um, appreciate when they're, uh, the sources of information they're getting are actually showing some restraint and showing some fairness and they need to check them their own little voices and their own sides that want something to be right or wrong. If you want to think the worst of the Israeli Defense Forces and you find yourself hoping that it's true, that it's that they bombed the hospital and sort of rooting for that, maybe put a little check on yourself. Maybe that's not the case. Or if you find yourself hoping to prove that uh, Hamas beheaded 40 babies, maybe take a minute and pause and ask yourself whether or not uh, you really have reason to believe that or if there's some impulse in you that uh, is demanding that you desire it. I think that we're all very comfortable um, in the West and in the United States and some of that privilege and that, uh, that comfort we get is not wanting to be exposed to disconfirmatory information because actually it's, less, it's more comfortable to have your prior views reinforced than to have them challenged. And so I do think ultimately there's a change that needs to occur among citizens or what we call news consumers is to actually welcome um, have, having publications tell you things that you didn't want to hear but are, are appear to be accurate or getting you to hold off and accept some amount of uncertainty.
Um, it's not a very satisfying answer, but I think it's the only way that you're going to restore some trust in multiple outlets. And the final thing I would just say about it is just that I think that we've moved beyond a place where you can trust a single person. You can't trust Walter Cronkite. I don't think you can. You should blindly trust Michael Schellenberger. You should question what we're reporting and get your news from a lot of different places. And that's the real promise of social media. Uh, there's these these voices that want to censor uh, information online or that that want to make it so that we rely more on official sources. Uh, those days are over. We're not going to put the genie of social media back in the bottle. We're not going back to the 1950s where we can trust everything Walter Cronkite of the New York Times says. Let's embrace this new moment, which is that you get multiple perspectives. You accept uh, the uncertainty and the ambu ambiguity, particularly in moments of war and stopping in such a hurry to get what we call epistemic closure or certainty allow us to you know allow yourself to live in the, in with, with a few days of not knowing certain things because that's just life and in particular that's what we see during wartime yeah it's definitely one of those times where maybe it's good to step outside of the echo chamber every once in a while to hear a different idea michael it is always so great having you with us and getting your perspective we'll be back with more rising right after this President Biden is receiving bipartisan applause for his response to the Israel-Hamas conflict. But his show of solidarity with Israel risks alienating a block of the electorate that's been overlooked, Arabs and Muslims. As veteran Democratic strategist Walid Shahid pointed out, quote, there will be a non-insignificant number of Arabs, Muslims, and young voters who sit out 2024 or vote for Cornell West instead of Joe Biden in states like Michigan and Georgia, given his near-one-sided support of Netanyahu's far-right government's atrocities. Unquote. MSNBC anchor Mendy Hassan parroted Walid's sentiment on X, writing, quote, Dems need to wake up to this. I'm hearing and seeing this everywhere. This conflict and Biden's position on it could literally help decide a super close country defining presidential election 13 months from now. A new CBS poll and YouGov poll shows Americans have mixed feelings on Biden's handling of the conflict in the Middle East. 44% approve of how he's responded, while 54% disapprove. When broken down by parties, 66% of Democrats approve, while 28% of Republicans do. 61% of independents disapprove of his response to the Israel-Hamas war. So I think uh, something that they didn't mention here, they're focusing a lot on identity politics, a lot on race and a lot on religion. But I think if we look at the recent polling by Quinnipiac, we see that 18 to 20 or 18 to 34 year olds are 39% uh, supportive of this. So that's a huge majority, so about 61% uh, that is not supportive of Biden's decision-making here and does not support uh, moreover more aid going to Israel, which looks like is Biden's plan. And that was a huge block of voters that helped deliver the presidency for Joe Biden in 2020. So I think going into 2024, he's got to consider young voters. Uh, is he going to actually represent them now and earn their voting again. And he's also got to consider this really important faction of voters, uh, Arabs and Muslims. 
Yeah, I think it's notable that sort of the split there on people, voters who support Biden's plan and people who don't support it kind of mirrors the overall Biden approval slide that we've seen since he took office, right? I mean, he's underwater on basically every approval metric that you look at. He's especially bad on handling the economy and on national security. The American people are just not impressed with what Joe Biden's doing. And part of that is because he made such, uh, from his basement in 2020, such lofty promises about this is going to be a return to normalcy. We're going to be uh, respected again on the world stage. The adults are going to be in the room. We're going to build back better. We're going to implement Bidenomics. All these things just never happened. You know, inflation has continued to rage, even though the White House tried to deny it at the beginning. National security is clearly in doubt. You have the State Department now warning American travelers anywhere in the globe that they're in danger of potential attacks. You have just everything sort of going in the wrong direction for Joe Biden, and the American people are seeing that. So I think it's unsurprising that when you ask people about this situation, they're not any more confident in what he is planning to do or what he ultimately will end up doing. Uh, I do think, obviously, when it comes to young voters, this is an issue that is more sort of front of mind for them. We've seen that on a lot of college campuses where student groups have signed on to these documents and statements basically blaming Israel for the rape and massacre of its own people. And so I think this is an issue where they're going to be a lot more vocal. Granted, Joe Biden has the help of a lot of the mainstream media and also has the help of, uh, you know, using apps like TikTok, where Democrats have a much larger use base and advantage than Republicans do. But I don't think that this is going to be the thing that makes or breaks him, because when you take the whole picture of what the Biden administration has done and what Biden policies have been or whatever the Biden doctrine when it comes to foreign policy is, none of it has worked. We've just seen people around the world, enemies of freedom around the world, specifically emboldened by the Biden administration, whether that's uh, looking at what happened in Afghanistan after the U.S. withdrawal. You have the Taliban taking over and causing, uh, you know, just a horrible situation there, human rights violations, things like that. You have, obviously, the Russian invasion of Ukraine that President Biden tried to stop by working with the Chinese to talk Putin out of it. That blew up in his face as well. And now we have the situation in Israel where you have Iranian-backed terrorists continuing to launch rockets at Israeli civilians. And so the Biden foreign policy, whether it's this specific issue or anything else, is not a winning one, and his whole administration seems to just be one where the American people don't agree with him. Yeah, and I honestly don't think it's going to hurt Donald Trump's presidency. He recently spoke out saying he's critical of Biden giving $100 million in aid to Palestinians. He did not criticize Joe Biden for giving $105 billion to Israel. So Donald Trump could have said, you know, if I was president, this conflict never would have happened in the first place. And a lot of his base might have believed him. They might have been like, yeah, Trump would have negotiated with the president of Israel and the prime minister Netanyahu, Herzog and Netanyahu. President Trump would have figured out a solution. They might believe that. He could have ran on that. But instead, he's pretty much saying that if he were president, he would pretty much do what Joe Biden is doing, minus the $100 million in aid to Palestinians. It seems that the president is saying he supports Israel and he would if he was president. He would support our allies. We could have had a scenario where Biden being president during this conflict and still supporting Israel and escalating the conflict by having the ambassador to the United Nations vote against a ceasefire. That could have meant that if you were an anti-war voter, that you could have voted for Donald Trump. But Donald Trump pretty much made clear uh, that that's not really what you'd be voting for, which I think does open up a lane for an independent in a way that wouldn't just be pulling votes from Joe Biden. And so this conflict is really shaping the 2024 presidential election in unprecedented ways here.
Yeah, it definitely is. And I do think it's interesting looking at sort of how Trump governed last time around and what he's campaigning on this time around. Obviously, the uh, the Trump administration's policy for the four years he was in office was basically, if you kill or threaten Americans, the Americans will kill you. And it seems that this time around it might be similar, although, again, what he's doing is not too dissimilar from what Joe Biden has called for. Uh, meanwhile, a new piece in the Intelligencer zeroes in on the seeming irony or hypocrisy among the Republican Party, in which Congress where they have vehemently opposed sending more aid to Ukraine, but are open to sending help to Israel, no holds barred. This is a really fascinating uh, piece here. So I don't know. I think uh, there's a, a division within the Republicans. I don't really see it as hypocrisy. I just think Republicans are super divided. You have so many like populist Republicans, you could say, populist right-wing Republicans, the Freedom Caucus, for example, that says very different things. Uh, from the mainline party Republicans. You have a, a huge group that is super anti-war, that is super critical of the decision to spend more money on defense when we have so many problems at home. It's kind of a new iteration of this America first thing that Donald Trump ran on in 2016. A lot of people are saying, hey, that means we're not giving money to foreign wars. So I don't know if I see it as hypocrisy so much as division within the party. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, somebody on the right I've talked to a lot of lawmakers amid the speaker fight, and this obviously being the news, comes up quite a bit. And I do agree. I don't think it's hypocrisy. I think the people who are uh, on both sides of this are the same people who would have said the same thing if it happened, you know, a year ago or two years ago or during Trump's administration. Uh, there are a lot of people in the Republican Party who are still trying to claw back war powers that the president sort of gobbled up uh, during previous administrations, and they don't think that we should just keep doing this, especially the American First uh, sort of agenda followers who are continuing to say, how can we do this when our border is open, when other things are happening? Uh, but I do think there's been this interesting sort of uh, the, the split between what should happen for Ukraine and what should happen for Israel, and I think it's because these are two very different issues when you look at them. You know, it's a, different of, a difference of who is doing the attacking. You know, you have a terrorist group that runs the government in the Gaza Strip doing this. You have the Hezbollah terrorists in Lebanon who are launching things down, but they're all supported by the Iranians, whereas in Ukraine you have, you know, literally Russia is just marching across the border to kill Ukrainians. And so treating these things as if they're the same issue, I think, is a disservice, and I think goes back to the point about whenever they're passing budgets. You know, they should do these on a one-by-one -one basis, because there might be some people who agree with certain things and disagree with others, and just rolling it all into one doesn't really help anyone when it comes to explaining why they're voting the way that they do, or even just debating the issues. You have to separate it out so that way you can talk about the merits of each thing individually and not end up just stuck voting yes or no on a bill and then slammed for your vote regardless of how you how you voted. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm just sick of, of members of both parties, Joe Biden included, trying to frame this as, you know, we're doing it because we're on the side of peace. We're doing this because we're on the side of justice now. When Biden, as a senator in 1986, gave a speech on the floor of Congress where he said, if there were not an Israel today, we would need to invent one. Three billion dollars is the best investment we'll ever make because having an Israel helps protect U.S. interests in the region. If they were more straightforward about why they wanted to fund Israel in this war, I think they would get more support if they were just honest and they said, listen, guys, there's a lot of anti-American sentiment in the region because we've been intervening in the Middle East for quite some time. This is our way 
to kind of quell that discontent and save America from potentially future terrorist attacks. Like be really honest about what your strategic intent is in the region. If you talk to anyone who served in the State Department, they will say that that is precisely a factor here, if not the main factor, but framing these wars as necessary so that we're on the right side of history and we're fighting for justice, I think it's just dishonest, especially when you can go back to Biden's old speeches where he tells you exactly why he thinks the U.S. needs to be involved in Israel. And so I think there's a lack of honesty here. And I think that is losing more votes than just the decision to fund Israel in this war against Hamas. A lot of folks drawing parallels with 9-11. I don't know if I do that, but I would draw parallels here with the United States funding the Mujahideen in their war against Russia. It was a larger geopolitical conflict. They saw this group as potentially strategic and uh, to be in alignment with the United States interests. They decided to train them, they decided to arm them and fund them, and then they turned into the Taliban. And then they didn't like the United States because of how we destabilized the region. Similarly, we had Netanyahu supporting Hamas. And so I can see a lot of Republicans and a lot of people in the foreign policy establishment saying, you know what, Israel did something that we did straight from our playbook and we actually have an interest as the United States of America to keep our people safe to get involved. Just be honest. Don't make it seem like you're doing the right thing by supporting Israel. Just be honest about your strategic intent. It is always interesting to go back and look at the speeches that Senator, then Senator Joe Biden gave when he was in the Senate because he's flip-flopped on basically everything that he ever said uh, from the Senate floor. But there does, I think you're right, seem to be this sort of loss of support just in general because of the way the government takes this sort of you-can't-handle-the-truth mentality whenever they're telling the American people what they're doing and why they're doing it. And we've seen when they uh, do that kind of thing, you know, obviously it's harder to get buy-in from the American people and support for it. And I think that goes back to, as I mentioned in the previous segment, uh, you know, why I expected a, a much stronger and more detailed speech from President Biden in the Oval Office last night, because this was an opportunity for him when he knows his agenda is underwater with the American people to really make a case, make a strong case for why the United States should be involved in Russia or in Ukraine, excuse me, against Russia, or in Israel against Hamas terrorism or anywhere else. And that we just didn't get that. And it seems to be, again, kind of the same thing where Democrats, especially like you were saying, rely on this is about democracy without ever really des uh, designating what that goal is or defining what their end game is and why we're doing the things that we're doing. It's always, we need money now because of democracy, but they never explain why that money from the taxpayers is actually helping democracy, if it even is at all. Uh, and I do, I do think that does a disservice because, again, it's hard for the American people to wrap their mind around something that they're not even told. Uh, whereas if they came to us and basically did a business pitch, sort of like Shark Tank, and explained we need this much money for this many years to do X, Y, and Z, I think you would have a lot more American people sign on to that because, again, it's a clear goal. It's not just another endless, uh, the start of an endless, you know, use of money and human lives and everything else. And instead, they just don't do that. And it, it kind of goes back again to this idea that whether or not you can trust what the government tells you or whether healthy skepticism is actually one of the key parts of being in a democracy and making sure that you know uh, that what they're telling you might not always be the truth and it's good to check it out and make sure you hold them accountable, even when they're purposefully nonspecific to sort of prevent that accountability from ever coming their way. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, on the front of democracy, we always use that as the guys. Well, we need to spread democracy abroad. There are these people all around the world that are, you know, terribly oppressed right now as this is going on. It's completely distracting from the U.S. mission in Haiti. We decided to circumvent getting consensus in the United Nations, and instead we're calling it like a multi-nation approach and peace mission. Most Haitians don't want us there. We have framed the people fighting for liberation from a government they don't like uh, 
uh, as terrorists instead of freedom fighters. They're saying, hey, you put this guy in place uh, as the head of state here. We didn't vote for him. We don't like him. The United States backed a coup of our democratically elected leader, and we've had 13 years of UN troops occupying the land here. They've been defecating in the water. It's confirmed that over 10,000 people got cholera. UN troops have had confirmed cases of raping the Haitians there. And then the United Nations, uh, instead of saying, you know what, United States, we're not going to support this at, at all, uh, although they didn't get a consensus, we now have Kenya as the, the face of this mission, even though it's entirely the United States not accepting the failure of their mission. And so it's, it's U.S. intervention time and again without the calculation being made. Are we making the situation better or worse for the region or the American people? And I think that's missing. We didn't get that explanation from Biden. And unfortunately, we never do. But I think in the age of social media where information freely flows, U.S. is going to have to do intervention in a different, perhaps more honest way. Yeah, I definitely uh, agree that more honesty is generally the best policy. But I also wonder, you know, you were talking about Haiti, but when you look at other mm -hmm. areas where the United States has gotten involved, you know, American soldiers have routinely been welcomed with applause and cheers and gratefulness around the world. But then you end up seeing situations where there's mis mission drift, where people, you know, sort of the bureaucracy takes over, the, the military contracts take over. And so what even may have been a good idea and what was, you know, spun honestly to the American people turns in just because of the nature of the federal government and the way the United States and bureaucracy works, ends up going so far afield that it's just not what was promised. And I think, again, that's why it's so important for our leaders to be completely honest as much as they can. Obviously, in some of these situations, they're dealing with you know sensitive information. Some of that also, for the record, turns out to be false in certain cases. Uh, but as, as honest as they can be with what they know and what they want to do, because that's the only way you're going to build support among the American people. Because for too, too many of us, especially millennials, I mean, if you look at the the events that have taken place in our lifespan. And there's a reason we don't trust the government. There's a reason we're disenchanted with the idea of government, you know, sort of taking care of us or helping us do what we want to do or build a good life. It's because we've seen them ruin so many lives, not just in the United States, but around the world. We've seen them waste so much human life and so much money. And there's no wonder that the American people aren't buying in just because Joe Biden says, hey, Jack, we're going to go here and do this. And the American people are saying, no, you don't even know what you're saying. How can we take your word for it that this is a good idea and a good use of taxpayer dollars, especially when things here at home domestically are going so poorly. Yeah, I think the evidence in our everyday lives just doesn't shake up against the narratives they're trying to tell us. We know that they're lying to us. And young people particular, in particular are central right now in deciding how this conflict goes, quite honestly, not just because the median age of people in Gaza is 18, but so many young people are fighting with the IDF. So many people in Israel were protesting the Netanyahu regime because he was saying that we have to change the constitution, the judicial branch has too much power, and he was losing support within his own country. I think people within Israel who perhaps at one point welcomed U.S. support are now questioning that because they can see that the United States has strategic interests in the region. They can see the oil interest in wanting to control uh, the oil industry, especially globally as a commodity, which is something the United States has always done. They can see them wanting to have geopolitical strategic power in the region and that being why they're supporting Israel. And to escalate a conflict like this one, they're putting the Israeli people at risk. Imagine how fearful they are of retaliation because of what's gone on over the past week. And so I think, you know, so many people see that they're very young and they have a government that doesn't represent us. We often talk about the Palestinians and the Israelis instead of talking 
pretty precisely about the Netanyahu regime and their decisions, and that four and five Israelis actually blame Netanyahu for what's going down right now. And so I think a lot of people are just sick of governments leveraging huge militaries with huge uh, weapons that have the ability to do insane damage uh, using things like white phosphorus and at worst uh, using bombs that can decimate entire neighborhoods. And these governments are fighting over things that really don't impact our everyday lives as much as they impact the lives of the oil barons and the people who stand to make a profit if the war goes one way or another, Raytheon and Lockheed Martin. Everyday American people want peace. I think everyday Israeli people want peace. I think people in Gaza want peace. And I think the governments are holding their citizens hostage by waging wars like this that we don't agree with. Yeah, there's definitely a lot more to be debated on that topic as the events in the Middle East continue to play out and potential escalations come. Uh, but as always, stay with Rising. We'll have more for you right after this. The State Department official Josh Paul has resigned from the agency over the Biden administration's handling of the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas. In a statement, the 11-year official said of the response that it, quote, is an impulsive reaction built on confirmation bias, political convenience, intellectual bankruptcy, and bureaucratic inertia. Meanwhile, State Department officials are reportedly preparing a dissent cable, a document criticizing American policy that goes to agency leaders through a protected internal channel over President Joe Biden's policy on Israel and Palestine. Biden's approach to the violence in the Middle East is fueling tensions in the United States government, according to the Huffington Post. One State Department official said, quote, there's basically a mutiny brewing within state at all levels. Officials reportedly told the Huffington Post that the Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and his senior advisors are seeing widespread internal frustration and that some department staff feel as if Blinken and his team are uninterested in their own advice as they focus on expanding Israel's operation in Gaza. According to Huffington Post reporter Akbar Shahid Ahmed, staff at the State Department are describing anger, depression, and tears in meetings. And rumors that colleagues will be quitting are floating. So joining us now to discuss is former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State and Congressional Candidate for Maryland, Joel Rubin. Welcome. Thank you for being here today. Thanks, Spencer. Um, so I guess my first question, you know, you're somebody who's been inside the State Department. You know, obviously, no matter what policies are being pursued, there are going to be people ostensibly who aren't necessarily thrilled with it. Has this kind of thing happened before? Did you ever see this in response to policies that were being pursued in your time? Well, it's great to be with you, and, and this is a very important moment in the State Department because any issue of war and peace requires engagement across the whole agency. Now, when I served, I actually served as a career official in the Bush administration during the invasion of Iraq. And at that time, there was significant concern. I personally was deeply concerned about it and chose to go work in the Senate as a, a Senate aide and join the Democratic Party and fight the war in Iraq as a congressional staffer. Uh, that was my route. Uh, and then when I came back into the Obama administration, many of my colleagues from that time were still there. And we had a lot of these deep conversations. Now, Josh Paul is a wonderful person, and he's an ex excellent official, uh, and he was always conscientious about his work. Uh, but I do think that there are ways to get the message across without necessarily uh, blasting the policy from outside. This is going to be a long process. And the people on the inside right now, if they have the deep concerns, as they clearly do, they do need to put it in writing. They do need to send it up the chain. They do need to get an audience with the leadership to try to move the policy, because there is no magic bullet to fixing this issue. Uh, there's no one single simple solution. And it requires people of goodwill on the inside to continue to make the arguments and to fight for what's best 
or to go on the outside potentially, uh, but this is very early in this stage. This is really interesting. I mean, I can look at this issue from the perspective of a civilian and look at the lives lost and think what a horrible tragedy. No country should give aid to another country that's doing this. And then I can put my mind uh, into the perspective of a State Department official. And perhaps they have to make the case that uh, this is not good for United States long-term security if we're going to expand Israel's uh, occupation in the region, if we're going to expand Israel's military operation in retaliation to what's going on, uh, to continue to try and uh, attack Hamas, and for the United States to give military aid for them to do so to the tune of $105 billion. It seems to me that it, that's not a hard case to make, that you're going to upset a lot of people in the region. Uh, similar to, to former instances, the Iraq war being one, thinking of Mujahideen being funded by the United States, creating the Taliban. We, we create a lot of anti-U.S. sentiments with these kinds of actions. Why do you think that's not the perspective of State Department officials and they're taking the route of quitting? Do you think they've already tried that uh, or do you think that they've just lost hope? Well, the policy towards Israel didn't just come up overnight. Uh, the American policy towards Israel has been ongoing for multiple decades. Uh, in the case of the money, uh, as an example, uh, the United States has been providing three-plus billion dollars of aid to Israel for decades now as a result of its peace agreement with Egypt. Capitol Hill supports that. The president got elected. He supports that. Ultimately, in the executive branch, it's the president that sets the policy. So when you're on the inside of the State Department arguing about the different approaches and how does how do the tactical issues uh, counterterrorism, where Hamas uh, committed a grave human rights violation by massacring well over a thousand Israeli civilians in their sleep. So how do you respond to that? And then how do you also maintain the view of the big picture of getting to peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians? How does one cobble together humanitarian aid to the Palestinians? There are different bureaus that work on all of that. Now, the interesting thing with Josh Paul is he was actually working in the Military Affairs Bureau. Bureau for Political Military Affairs is the title. I had served, I've served in that bureau. Uh, that's a bureau that's been providing weapons and military equipment to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to all countries around the world. And I don't know why he didn't have reservations about those kinds of arms transfers to countries that were uh, uh, creating uh, and have problematic dynamics uh, in their internal, internal uh, uh, hum human rights conditions, for example. But he chose this one. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, the president sets the policy and it's the job of the career people to provide all the advice they can to say what that impact could be and push it up the chain and argue with their colleagues. But there is a decision maker, and that's the Secretary of State and then the President himself. And I think, you know, as Americans have been watching, you know, obviously everything that's unfolded in the last two weeks there, most of them with really deep horror at what they've seen happen. And they want to know, you know, sort of why did this happen? And obviously for a lot of people that's pointing to support from the Iranian regime. Yeah. Obviously they fund Hamas, they fund Hezbollah, they fund the uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, all these other groups in the Middle East. And then you see, uh, you know, due to reporting and other things, there's sort of increasing danger around the world. And obviously for the State Department, they believe that diplomacy is the way to solve these things. And then just yesterday, we saw this alert from the State Department, this global warning, say that if the, you're a U.S. citizen anywhere in the world right now, you need to basically exercise even more caution than you normally would being abroad. What does that tell you about what's going on inside the State Department and what they might be hearing and how concerned they might be that this is not necessarily just an issue contained to the Gaza Strip and Israel? 
This is the perfect question. Look, the State Department and the way it functions is to uh, engage everywhere around the world. And what has happened over the last couple of days, the regional dynamics uh, after the explosion at the hospital that uh, killed hundreds of civilians, uh, that unleashed an anger and a rage in the Arab world. And many uh, instances, uh, we saw in many instances that being taken out against the American embassy and a concern. Uh, that information comes straight at back from our embassies directly to Washington, directly to the bureau that governs the region, in this, in this case, the Bureau for Near Eastern Affairs that oversees our policy there. And they get those cables overnight, and they, they read from the ambassador what is happening in the situation on the ground. And that immediately gets funneled into the State Department's debate and discussion process. Do we order departures of our employees? Do we keep them in place? How do we work with the local governments who are ultimately responsible? for security at our facility there, uh, and, and this is part of it. And I, I understand from the administration that the, tomorrow there is a peace conference that Egypt is organizing in Cairo, and the United States will be participating in that with other Arab countries, because none of the countries in the region want this to metastasize and to grow into a regional war. And they want this situation to be local, and the Saudis, for example, even today said they want a two-state solution. They want an end state, like not just sticks, but also carrots. And I think that's where the president, he was speaking to that as well last night. So all of these are at play. But at the end of the day, the region cannot be set aflame if we're ever going to get peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians. I think there's major tensions between, you know, the bureaucracy, the career guys, and then elected officials in the United States. Yes. It used to be the case that Congress had to vote to authorize any kind of military intervention. We saw the rise of covert affairs and operations and increasingly, you know, a reliance on the United Nations to send troops and all of these sort of workarounds, you know, financial transfers instead of, you know, direct military intervention that would require Congress to approve the United States being involved militarily anywhere. Do you see that changing or do you see this conflict at all being a catalyst for that changing so that there's a little bit more power in determining United States foreign policy, diplomacy and military action by elected officials in Congress versus, you know, career folks in the State Department? Well, if we had a Congress that functioned, we might get some of that direction. Uh, we have no House, and so the appropriation request that was just put forward by the administration is asking for more money. Congress has a direct role over that, over that spending. They can uh, create the authorities that will go to Israel in this case and to Ukraine as well, but they're not there. They're not present. And so Congress, by functioning badly, by the Republicans preventing there from being an actual Speaker of the House, they're undercutting their own ability to influence the policy. And and harming America's uh, image and national security abroad. So yes, there needs to be a congressional role. Ultimately, these are funds provided by the American people. This represents the American people, and this is supposed to help the American people. And so Congress must be at the table. They must be having an engagement, and they must be helping to set the policy. Regrettably, the House, though, isn't doing that right now because of their own dysfunction at the Republican leadership level. Well, Joel, thank you so much for being here, sharing your expertise. What's Thanks. it like inside and outside the State Department? Uh, we will be right back with more Rising right after this. In a resurfaced clip that is now going viral, comedian, Egyptian satirist, and TV talk show host Bassem Youssef had advice for the U.S. Here he is in an appearance on Jon Stewart's Apple Plus program in June. Let's watch.
You had an election and people kind of like didn't accept it and went and wanted to take things in their own hand. But the, 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 what happened in January 6th, I mean, the, the worst thing that happened on there is the comparisons. Like people like the pundit on the news were saying, mm -hmm. oh my God, this looks like a, a coup from the Middle East. And this kind of hurt my feeling because, you know, <laughs> no, seriously. <laughs> You know, like, you know, like, first of all, first of all, when we have a coup in the Middle East, it works. <laughs> you guys suck. You guys... We're new. You, this is new. You are... You, We're you, trying. Keep, keep, keep to what you do best, toppling democracy in other countries. Awesome, Yusuf did not stop there. And then every time it's like, oh, coup in the Middle East, oh, uh, white ISIS, uh, Texas Taliban, get your own references. I mean, it's kind of, why are we being well, dragged into this every you know time? That we're every... hyperbolic, that's who we are. We, everything, you think I have you guys on here because I want to know what your lives are like? I want to know what's going to happen to us. <laughs> You're the canaries in the coal mine. I just want to find out what the is going to happen to us. I think Basim Yusuf does a really brilliant job using comedy to reveal a lot of hypocrisies that we have in the world, especially when we think about geopolitics. I think he made a good point that the January 6th insurrection didn't really look like a strategically planned coup. I mean, Donald Trump was kind of at the helm of it. That's up for debate. But I think he makes a good point that we can't compare what happened on January 6th to a lot of coups in the Middle East. Also, he makes a good point to say that sometimes the United States military is involved in coups in the Middle East. They have no choice but to be terribly strategic and terribly effective when the United States is oftentimes on the other side. So I think this clip is going viral because of his recent exchange with Pierce Morgan. But I think it's pretty solid geopolitical commentary and still relevant today. Yeah, definitely. I mean, just the, the way that a lot of people and uh, politicians and leaders and groups on the left side of things have, again, tried to label January 6th and the events of that day as basically a full-blown coup and an attempt to topple the United States government. As he points out, like, no, that's, that's not actually what happened. And obviously, you've had comparisons in the United States by people saying that it's, you know, the worst thing uh, or on the same sort of level of what happened on September 11th, 2001, or what happened in Pearl Harbor. Uh, and it's just, it, it's insane that the, the sort of the rhetoric around that is, has risen to that level. It just doesn't make sense when you look at what actually happened. You know, nobody, I shouldn't say nobody, most people, I included, are not defending what happened on January 6th, but it's also not the same as saying, you know, this was uh, clearly a coordinated attempt to overthrow the United States Congress and install a dictator. You know, that wasn't going to happen. There were backstops. That was never actually going to be the case. But we see, again, as this, uh, you know, in a, in a lighter way, pointed out that that's just silly to make those kind of claims. And obviously, I, I think the, the lighter touch is something that the Biden administration could use when you look back at the speeches that the president has given about democracy or whatever he, he chooses to use as sort of the representation of what was under attack that day. I'm reminded specifically of the speech, a uh, very angry speech he gave in Philadelphia uh, before the midterm election where, you know, he was bathed in red light and very dramatic and flanked by Marines. And it was just sort of this very authoritarian speech condemning uh, these attacks on democracy or whatever he chose to call it. And, you know, as that comedian just pointed out, you know, this is not really a threat to actual democracy. Our, our government was not going to fall. We weren't going to end up in a country that was not governed by the Constitution. That just wasn't the case. And so I, I think it is nice that people can now poke fun at those who are claiming that this was a full-blown coup, because it wasn't. Yeah, I think the folks that were chanting, hang Mike Pence, the folks that were looking for Nancy Pelosi and AOC, 
Yeah, they should be held accountable for trying to kill people that are in public office in the United States. Uh, I think framing this as a as an attempted coup, is it the thought that counts when it comes to a coup? <laughs> Maybe. I think when we found out that the FBI knew about a lot of the planning around January 6th before it happens, happened, told us that perhaps they knew that it would go the way it did. I'll never forget the Azalea Banks tweet where she posted someone scaling the wall to get into the halls of Congress and said this is crackhead behavior. I think uh, we need to be really real about January 6th and say, because it was so unorganized, how the heck did they get into the congressional building? Why is the security so poor that even people that were not wielding massive weapons like we see in so many attempted coups, how did they get in? How did they overpower the security that was there? And if the FBI had intel, why wasn't there more security there? There's a lot of questions around January 6th, but I think Basim Yusuf's point here is that a lot of Americans don't understand what goes on in other countries? And a lot of what goes on in other countries, these coups, these episodes of violence, these wars are funded by the United States. United States dollars and the US military is oftentimes the ones wielding the weapons or supplying them. But we have the privilege in the United States to not fully understand conflict, to not fully understand suffering abroad. And so when the United States gets involved, we have the US Congress never voting to send troops but we have the State Department and the federal government and Congress voting to fund the Pentagon, voting to fund the military. And they make decisions on behalf of the American people with US dollars. And we never see the end of it. We never see the outcome of it. We never see what happens. And still, even with the troops that we are sending to Haiti now, we're doing it through the United Nations. So Congress never has to have a vote on it at all. There's a lack of democracy in the United States when it comes to foreign policy decision-making. And I think it's time for that to change. But Bassem Youssef makes a really good point that the American people have no idea what conflicts are like abroad. Yeah, yeah, and I do think uh, sort of the the whole reality that you just described there is another great argument for why uh, this idea that personnel is policy is absolutely true. Because when you're in the executive branch and you have all these sort of avenues you can use to get around Congress and the people's elected representatives, the people you put in the positions and have that power is actually very important to what happens both here at home and, of course, around the world, uh, thanks to the United States. But in that clip, you know, despite the brief levity there, tensions are obviously running very high worldwide. And so watch here as a CNN reporter on the ground in the West Bank is confronted by a protester. Because this is kind of where the clashes keep happening. So, all right. You are genocide supporters. You are not welcome here. Genocide supporters. CNN. CNN. Genocide supporters. And so, obviously, that's sort of the, the real-world implication of what is going on around the world, not just sort of uh, the fun comic sides talking about what's going on domestically or internationally. Uh, but in that clip, you know, you see somebody who, again, is accusing CNN of being on the side of the genocide supporters, which, of course, to most people who live in Gaza, that would be the Israeli government, even though it was the Hamas terrorists that most recently launched their attack into Israel and slaughtered, you know, more than 1,300 people, including babies, women, children, abducted American citizens as well. Um, 
CNN, you know, might be used to getting uh, negative treatment from some people here in the United States, but that's just a whole nother level. That's actually people who don't appreciate the freedom of the press and people who think there shouldn't be free expression and you shouldn't be able to report the news, even though CNN was there just sort of taking a feel for what it's like on the ground there. Uh, what do you make of that? And I, I mean, credit to that CNN reporter. That looked absolutely harrying. Yeah, it was good that it didn't end up in any sort of retaliation from the reporter just kind of standing there. Uh, I can understand people being pretty upset with mainstream press and their coverage of the conflict. And I think this video shows a turning point where people are possibly going to start hold the, holding the press accountable for their role in war, their role in fomenting support in a nation for intervention, in this case, the United States. I think people are really holding media accountable in a way that is probably necessary. We have the freedom of the press in the United States, but we can also hold the press accountable. We can also scream at them if they say things that we don't like. And I think that's a good part of the of a functioning democracy as well. Uh, the alternative to someone yelling at a reporter is them getting bombed. We had journalists literally get hit with an Israeli shell in Lebanon this week. And so I, when I think about the press and when I think about the role of the press in covering conflict, they absolutely need to be protected so they can tell the truth. But we can't pretend that the press is always non-biased. I'm sure that there was a reason that Israel hit those journalists in Lebanon. They're probably pretty inconvenient if they're reporting uh, on the war crimes that Israel is, is committing in Gaza. And so I think that there are a lot of reasons for people to be upset with the press right now and hold them accountable for the things they're saying, the things they're doing, and their role in war. I think there's a reason that journalists become a target by governments when they're reporting on a war. No one's free of bias, really. So I think, you know, shouting at a journalist when you're seeing so many of your people killed uh, is is probably him showing restraint in that case. And I think we'll, we'll probably see more of this. But I think holding one journalist accountable for all of what CNN is doing maybe doesn't make sense. Maybe we need to go to the top of those at CNN who are making those decisions. Yeah, it often isn't the reporters on the ground who are the ones making the decisions. It's oftentimes editors or producers or others. Uh, and I would point out that in places like Gaza, both in this current situation and before, they have purposely put their terrorist infrastructure, weapons, intelligence centers, and other things in buildings where journalists are present to intentionally use them as human shields with the hope of keeping the Israelis from taking out those terrorist targets. Um, and of course, Israel generally warns them with either a roof knock or phone calls and other things like that. So just because journalists are being hit, which is, of course, a tragedy, does not mean that the terrorists did not also have something to do with why those locations were struck. Uh, in any case, again, a lot more to discuss on this and around the world. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Biden White House admitted on Thursday that it should not have posted a picture showing the faces of members of an elite U.S. Army Special Forces unit on assignment in Israel when it posted a photo of them in uniform shaking hands with the president. A White House spokesperson told Fox News, quote, as soon as this was brought to our attention, we immediately deleted the photo. We regret the error and any issues this may have caused. Meanwhile, President Biden had this to say to reporters while on Air Force One. Let's watch. So you're talking? Yes. Okay. So Cece agreed to open that up? Yes. Okay. For this purpose. For this purpose. Not to allow a lot of people out, but to open it up for this purpose. For humanitarian assistance? For the humanitarian, for the trucks to be able to get through. And what is that plankers? just? Well, look, what I, you guys are such a pain in the neck. Sorry, <laughs> sir. Um, but uh, here's the deal. 
So I don't know if President Biden there was saying, oh, you're answering or asking questions rather from behind me. I have to turn my neck so much. Uh, or if he is saying he really hates fielding questions from reporters. I'm going to go with the latter. I'm going to go with Biden was very tired and very honest on Air Force One and didn't really want to field questions from reporters. I, I don't know why you would invite them in that case. As far as the doxing goes, that is such a terrible response. That does not address the situation with the gravity that it exists. There are a lot of people who join the military because it's advertised as guaranteed income, stable. You can potentially get a college degree paid for in the United States. It's seen as a way out to be socially mobile if you're working class in the US. A lot of these people, I'm sure, do not want to be held accountable for the geopolitical decisions of the United States. No, absolutely not. And I mean, basically, the White House response to doing this was just oopsie. Like, did the people in the White House press office not know that they were meet, that the president was meeting with people who obviously should not have their faces plastered over the internet? And the fact that it took the White House so long to take it down, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, if not more, had already seen the photo by the time they realized their little whoopsie and had taken it down. And even more egregiously, this is not the first time that the Biden White House has posted a photo that exposed people who really ought not to have their faces all over Instagram or Twitter. If you remember back during Biden's uh, ultimately deadly and disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, they posted a photo during criticism that the president was not sort of on top of things and wasn't working on what was happening on the ground in Kabul and other places in Afghanistan. They posted a photo of him at Camp David working in one of the conference rooms, and he's having a conversation with his aides, including Vice President Kamala Harris and other members of his administration from the Pentagon and the State Department, but that it also included the faces and identification of people working at the CIA station in Doha. And so again, they faced the same issue where it was like, hey, maybe the White House should not be tweeting out photos of who's running the CIA operation in the Middle East right now, but they clearly didn't learn their lesson then if they're again posting pictures like the one that they got caught doing just recently. And I just, I, again, is this just the result of having inexperienced and I guess unqualified staff working in the press office and not checking on photos before they're released and sent publicly? Is this something where they just don't care, maybe? They're just thinking, you know, we have to get this photo up because the president is taking heat on Twitter, so we better respond with this Instagram post. You know, what? there's really no explanation because, again, they did this before, faced the blowback, and then continued to not be careful with what they're posting. You know, Spencer, at least Joe Biden, when he exposes declassified information and secrets that should be kept within the administration, he does it for all of the public to see instead of being so selfish like Donald Trump, keeping all of those documents in the bathroom in Mar-a-Lago and only sharing them with his close friends and buddies who frequent his establishment. I mean, Joe Biden's a man of the people for making it public. <laughs> I do agree that whoopsies summarizes their response from the administration here. And I think perhaps it's just bold and arrogant of the United States to say, you know what, we can protect ourselves because we have so much money for our military that we don't even care if you see their faces, you can't get our guys anyway. That is absolutely the kind of moral hazard thinking that goes into posting a photo like this. Also, why would you think it was a photo op in the first place? Why were cameras there in the first place? No one thought that that would be an issue. I mean, it goes to show that maybe the guy who's very sleepy on Air Force One was making the decisions there. No one who's an aide to Joe Biden was like, uh, sir, perhaps not. Perhaps we don't expose the identities of US Special Forces soldiers at a time of a very intense conflict. I don't know. It seems to me that whoever's making decisions around Joe Biden doesn't have Joe Biden's best interests or the country's.
No, I think that's been pretty clear for the, most of the Biden administration, that his aides are generally more frustrated with him and generally trying to sort of just guide him and focus on the very bare minimum of things that he needs to do, that I think maybe situations like this are slipping through the cracks, where nobody thought, hey, maybe this should just be an intimate moment with the president, you know, thanking members of the armed services for their service and what they're doing to keep Americans safe at home and abroad, and maybe shouldn't be just transparently a photo op, as apparently it was. Um, and I do, I am trying to figure out how to come at this, but I see your classified documents at Mar-a-Lago in a bathroom, a very nice one, I should point out, and raise you a box of classified documents sitting next to a Corvette in a garage in Delaware. I guess, again, that is more a bit man of the people, And but unless he was having a garage sale, you know, how would his neighbors in Rehoboth Beach have ever, have ever known what was in those boxes? Yeah, and I, I love that Donald Trump was like, no, they're mine. I'm keeping them. You can't have them. Biden was like, oh, I didn't even know those were there. I'm not sure which is worse, actually. Uh, probably trying to keep all of the documents and, you know, skirting the law, even when you know you've broken it. But also Mike Pence having classified documents. Why do all of these folks have documents laying around? I can understand that there's some security concerns if they're always uh, accessing them on like Google Drive or something digital. Right. If if hacking happens, you know, we have to use paper, but they're just lying around in people's garages and bathrooms anyway. Perhaps we have to go digital. But I think shows weakness in U.S. cybersecurity that we don't feel confident doing that. We could have just had folks break into Joe Biden's garage or go into that bathroom in Mar-a-Lago to gain access. You don't even have to hack into someone's computer. But I think in any case, what's going on with this administration right now just shows messiness especially when you have Israel, which is supposedly our ally, uh, not even giving us the intelligence that they have. In the instance of the hospital bombing, and we'll get into this more in the show, I think, later on, but why is it that Joe Biden's like, well, a lot of the evidence, you know, points that it wasn't Israel. Why don't you just ask them? They're our allies. We fund their military. Wouldn't they tell you? And this puts us in a weird situation where we're like, okay, so either you know the truth and you're not telling it to us, Joe Biden, or they didn't tell you the truth, or you're skeptical if your ally's capable of telling you the truth. Like, what is going on here that we're not sure if one of our allies actually did bomb this hospital that's become the center of the media this week? Why don't we have that intelligence? It just looks very messy inside the Biden administration right now. Yeah, I think maybe the lack of cohesive or coherent information from the White House might be because they end up spending so much time trying to figure out who has classified documents where and what's been posted <laughs> on Instagram and Twitter. That's, I mean, it seems like most of their focus is always just kind of on cleaning up stuff, right? I mean, whether it's uh, President Biden, you know, thankfully in a speech last night didn't say anything that had to be immediately cleaned up, but in other major speeches on foreign policy and U.S. policy, President Biden has frequently had to have a cleanup on Isle Joe after his speech, whether it was just ad-libbing the line saying that Putin cannot remain in power while he was speaking in Poland. Uh, I think at least twice or maybe three times now he's said that it was the U.S. position that if China invaded Taiwan, U.S. forces would get involved and defend Taiwan, which is not the case. And so I do think that this White House spends a good deal of time, rather than sort of proactively looking at what they're going to do next, they end up spending just as much, if not more time, cleaning up what Joe Biden just said. Uh, and I think, you know, that clip at the beginning of this segment with uh, the president on Air Force One was just, put him to bed. Do not 
sent him back to the press cabin on Air Force One. He has no business being back there talking to reporters when he clearly is sleep-deprived, is jet-lagged, is whatever it is. He should not have been back there taking questions. And it probably was a pain in his neck because he didn't want to do it either. But I'm sure at some point, you know, as we've heard from, from many outlets, Joe Biden is not known as an accessible president to reporters and to the press. And so they probably thought, well, this might be the safest opportunity we have, and just sort of rolled him back on a drink cart to the press cabin and said, good luck. Um, I, I do think it was interesting in that clip. You saw some of it. But if you watch the full clip, looking at all of his aides surrounding him and the, the looks on their faces as they're listening, you know, you've got Secretary of State Blinken, you've got the press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, you've got John Kirby from the National Security Council, and they're all kind of peering around him like, oh, dear, what is, where is this answer going to go? And I don't think they ever know necessarily where it's going to go, and that's why we get into so many of these messes. Uh, where what he says is not what the United States policy actually is. Uh, we will closely keep tracking, though, of course, what Joe Biden says and whether it's right or wrong. But we'll be right back with more Rising after this. It has been 10 years since China's Belt and Road Initiative was formed, which is a global infrastructure development strategy that was adopted by the Chinese government to develop trade routes connecting China with the rest of the world. At the third Belt and Road Initiative Forum this week, President Xi Jinping unveiled new plans for the project, including his vision for future infrastructure, as well as emerging technology like digital space. Meanwhile, the Taliban government is seeking to join the Belt and Road Initiative as China has shown interest in strengthening ties with the militant movement. Economics professor at Willamette University, Yen Long, joins us now to weigh in on the anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative, as well as current United States-China relations. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So to kick things off, obviously, when you look at the world right now, there's sort of this competition that the United States has with China. It's a competition of influence, of power around the world. Where do things currently stand right now, and what does it mean that the Taliban might be looking at joining this with China? Right. So first of all, I think between U.S. and China, um, you know, since the former President Trump, um, you know, uh, the two countries were in some sort of a trade war um, and President Biden inherited and doubled down on the sort of competition with China. So the most recent irritation of uh, ir uh, irritation of the, the war, um, so to speak, it, it lies in the high tech side. So um, if you remember, President uh, Biden has initiated a ban on the high tech you know, uh, chips to China and also some manufacturing equipment of chips to China um, since last year. And just very recently, on October 7th, um, the Bureau of Industry and Security issued a new uh, sort of uh, um, regulations on the ban of, you know, high-tech chips and also manufacturing equipment of those chips to, to China. So it's sort of, again, trying to close the loopholes as they, as they caught it and trying to really reinforce the rules uh, of bending sort of the high-tech chips to China because uh, the concern, again, is China may use these chips to manufacture, uh, you know, uh, arti arti sorry, artificial intelligence uh, equipment and also apply, you know, these um, AI products into its military equipment. So at this point, I think, you know, what the Biden administration has been talking about is we're, no, we're not interested in decoupling from China. Uh, we're too much entangled with the Chinese economy and decoupling is not realistic, but we're trying to de-risk, uh, meaning that we're going to set these small uh, yards, but with very high fence to protect the U.S.'s, um, you know, interest 
in uh, high tech and also that military uh, security interests. Now, when it comes to Taliban's joining of the BRI, I think um, it's clear that Afghanistan occupies a very important strategic, you know, locations in that Belt Road sort of routes, uh, and also the B BRI. Uh, really boasts on this open, clean, and green kinds of cooperation. So open means it's very inclusive. Anyone who wants to join will be able to have a seat. Uh, clean means it has to be transparent and, you know, anti all kinds of corruption practices. And finally, green. So this is the, the most recent focus is to promote green development. So a lot of talk is happening now uh, about this thing called the China miracle and that the China miracle is ending. A lot of folks in the United States have been concerned about this thing that they call globalism, which I think is something different than what a, a lot of academics mean when they say globalism. There's a fear uh, that the United States is outsourcing a lot of their manufacturing to either multinational corporations abroad or other countries. There's a lot of fear about China's rising economic power and so much reporting about the China miracle ending. Can you just say a little bit about what the China miracle is and in your view if it's ending or continuing? Yeah, great question. I think these are two uh, related questions, um, but they're also independent questions. So for China's miracle, what that means is in the past 40 years, China has uh, really achieved the net breaking growth. Um, so av average uh, analyzed growth rate, you know, was close to double digits. So, um, but the, the so-called end of China's miracle, again, it's really now uh, plagued uh, with all the media outlets and many of the think tank reports. So what they're arguing is because China has this structural flaws in its economy, it relies too much on debt, too much on investment. So now we're coming to the time where debt is um, it's, it's so high that it's going to crush the economy. Um, and plus, uh, Xi Jinping's leadership has really uh, turned the other way around, you know, made make, make China's economy less dynamic. Um, the private sector is much more restricted and so on and so forth. So that's the idea of, you know, China is coming to a, a the miracle is coming to an end. China is going to enter the slow growth or even, you know, sort of a, a secular stagnation. Uh, the growth rate is going to be around two to three percent from this point on. Now, uh, and then when it comes to sort of the globalism or what the Biden administration and the Europeans are talking about is the so the, the, the idea of de-risking. Um, so this idea that we're relying too much on China in terms of the supply chain, especially in some of the, you know, critical minerals and also in some of the manufacturing products. Uh, this is sort of a revelation, you know, after the pandemic um, that um, all these Western economies are relying so much on, you know, industrial supplies from China. And now with the tech war, um, again, the revelation is, you know, when China banned, for example, Galleon and, and uh, the most recent one, the graphite, graphite um, exports, um, then, you know, these countries will put themselves at a vulnerable position. So the idea is that we need to de-risk. We need to shift the supply chain away from China, or at least diversify the supply chain to more allied countries. Um, so I think this is the most recent sort of strategies um, under the Biden administration. You know, as that's all been going on, China, as we've been talking about, is celebrating, you know, another anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative and what that's been doing. Can you talk a little bit about what that might look like in Afghanistan? You know, obviously, as you said, this is an important sort of location in their long-term plan as far as where they want to have, have a foothold uh, in different places in the world. But what would this look like to them? And what sort of restrictions or requirements might they have for the Taliban government? And is it wise for them to even trust the Taliban to be able to keep up its end of any bargain they strike? Right. Well, this is a great question. I think China has the uh, 
experience, I would say, and also um, some sort of tactics and strategies to work with governments that are not necessarily very reliable or transparent or um, democratic, right? China itself is not democratic. Um, so I think um, it has the ways uh, to engage these governments. Now, in terms of what needs to be done, I think, you know, one thing that is clear from the BRI is it's kind of very good in financing and constructing infrastructures. So roads, highways, um, ports, and many other hard infrastructure uh, to, to promote the connectivity between countries. So as we all know, you know, Afghanistan right now, it's really under um, really a shovel, you know, in terms of the infrastructure. So I think China can definitely play a role in rebuilding some of the necessary infrastructure, you know, even just like paved roads. Um, I think that would go a long way to help to boost economic activities. Um, but the next stage of China's BRI as, uh, you know, Xi Jinping delivered this eight point speech um, at the Bell Road Forum. And the emphasis is going, uh, it's going to be on green development and also tech development. So I think that probably will reflect in some of these so-called smart, beautiful, small and smart kind of projects in various regions, I would assume, including Afghanistan, which is, you know, they're going to build uh, projects that are relatively less in, uh, in, in scale, but they're going to try to boost, for example, renewable energies production um, or, you know, some of the people-centered kinds of infrastructures. It could be as simple as, you know, uh, water or other sort of utilities that are much 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 needed uh, by the local people. A lot of this conversation is surrounded by this thing we call debt, government debt, public debt. A lot of people are fearful that uh, the United States, as Obama would say in his stump speech, has taken out a credit card with the Bank of China and our children are going to have to pay it off. Right now, our government's funded thanks to a stopgap bill. Otherwise, we'd be facing a shutdown. Lots of talk about us balancing our budget. Our debt is a problem. A lot of talk about China's debt being a problem for them. Can you just say a, a little bit about why we perhaps should not be so concerned about foreign debt uh, held by China? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think uh, it's very interesting that, you know, the commentators would put on, put at China and the United States, you know, both countries are considered as taking too much debt, excessive debt, um, that's gonna produce really um, pernicious consequences over, over time. But I think, you know, these two countries are different and they have definitely also similarities, I would say. I think it's a big mistake to lump you know, private debt and government debt together, you know, because both countries' governments are sovereign governments. They issue their own currencies, they spend in their own currencies, and they incur debt mostly in their own currencies. So there's no concern about the government is going to go bankrupt or not being able to, uh, you know, redeem the debt or repay the debt, or even if the government needs to repay the debt, so uh, you know, in the final analysis. Um, so I think for the United States, it's really not a question about can we afford taking on more debt to finance some necessary spending. You know, we have passed three important acts in the past, you know, three years, you know, 2021, we have the, you know, Infrastructure Act, 2022, we have the Inflation Reduction Act, and then we also have the Chips and Science Act. You know, these arguably are expensive acts, but they're going to go a long way to help to boost the U.S.'s long-term economic prosperity. So I think it's very much needed. Now, um, Jenny Yellen also just talked about that, you know, the United States can afford, quote unquote, um, two wars at the same time. But we really need to unpack this. I think, yes, financially, we can afford, you know, despite that the debt is $33 trillion, but the U.S. government will never uh, voluntarily need to default on those debts. Uh, they can always pay. They're the currency issuer of the U.S. dollars. 
But the question is, do we want to do that? Should we do that? What kind of uh, spending projects we should prioritize? And do we have the resources for that? Do we really want to afford in the sense of costing human lives? Um, but I definitely think, you know, for some of the priorities that most of the Americans really want, right? Healthcare, you know, uh, better infrastructure, um, better healthcare, and so on and so forth. I definitely think that the United States can't afford it. Now, for China, I think it's the same thing. Um, most of the debt right now incurred uh, are incurred um, at the local government's level. So it's kind of semi-public debt. If the central government wants, they can always centralize and physicalize you know, these debt. Um, so I don't think this is really a problem. The, the question, of course, for most country is the political will. Are they willing to do the right thing um, to solve sort of this debt problem? Well, that is something we will definitely be keeping an eye on here, how we end up solving that problem. Thank you, Professor Liang, for joining us. Thank you so much. Well, that wraps it up for us. Thank you, Jessica. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, Rising is now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Jessica, thank you so much for another great episode. Another good Friday. Bye, y'all.